Good stuff. Well, it's super to see you all here today. And if you're a visitor with us or this is your first time, we give you a very special welcome. We have been doing a series at the minute on 1 Samuel, and and we're in chapter 4 today. So if you've got your Bible with you, why don't you go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses from that chapter and kind of working our way through it today. Um, If you've missed the the series, you can get it on YouTube and Facebook and different places. Um, some people might ask, what is the point in doing a, a, a walk through 1 Samuel? But as I was explaining the first week we started this, 1 Samuel is one of those books that really help you get a grasp of the, the Old Testament picture and what's going on there. And the significance of the stories in this book will stand you in good stead for understanding the rest of the Bible. So that's why we're going through it. There are themes in this book that really help you understand even prophetic literature. Or if you're reading the prophets or you're reading through Chronicles or Kings, um, you only get to discover the significance of that when you understand this So that's why we're going through it. Um, Hopefully you've been enjoying it, but if you haven't, that's tough luck. So um, we're going to look at chapter 4 today. We've already seen in the time of 1 Samuel, the people of God are, are struggling to take possession of the land that God has given them. They're running into difficulty um, with the priesthood at that time. Eli and his two sons are supposed to be helping people worship God, but instead of that, they're abusing God's people. They're manipulating them. They're taking things that don't belong to them, and they're just basically bad guys. So the whole nation is struggling under the weight of that. There's also ideas in people's heads about wanting to be like other nations, wanting to be led not by God himself, but with with somebody else at the helm. And when you look at the priesthood and the supposed leaders of that day, you can understand why that is. We also discovered a key character in the Bible called Samuel. Samuel was a special boy born to Hannah, who couldn't have children, but prayed for a child. And Samuel was born, and she said that she would give that child to the Lord. And that's what she did. So Samuel, this boy, this special boy, goes to live with Eli and Eli's sons at the temple where people come to worship. And we discovered last time, it was a couple of weeks ago, that Samuel, as a boy, heard specifically from God. God spoke in an audible voice to Samuel, who was around 10 to 14 years old, and that started Samuel on this journey of being the prophet in the land in those days. So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 4 with all that in mind, and let's read the first few verses. Before we do, let's just pray. God, we thank you for your presence today. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you for your mercy and your love. And God, we thank you for your word, as we're going to turn to now, and we pray that you would open our ears to hear your word for us today, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read from verse 1. It says, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? And we're going to stop the reading there, but as always, keep your Bible open, and we'll refer to the rest of the passage in a moment. We've heard a lot this morning about victory, 
and about God wanting to bring victory into our lives and about us as Christians walking in victory. But here in this passage, we see the people of God are defeated before their enemy, the Philistines. One of the fierce enemies of Israel at this time was the Philistines. They were uh, a bad bunch, and we see later in the story of Samuel that a Goliath comes from the Philistines. But these Philistines were mean, they were hard, they were cold, and they were good warriors. And in this battle we're reading about today, the people of God are defeated. 4,000 Israelite soldiers killed in battle. The people of God lie before the Philistine warriors defeated. Now, that's a contrast to what we've been singing about. And we're left asking the question, why was that? And that was the question they asked too. And let's discover why that was. This battle that Israel went into was an unsanctioned battle. It was something that God had not told them to do. In fact, the Philistines were camped in the land. Israel was camped on the other side. And they chose to go and fight without God's say-so at the time. The elders of Israel asked the question, why did the Lord bring defeat on us this day? And with all the background that we know about Samuel, all we know that the elders of Israel were ignoring the very real, real situation that the priesthood was in a mess. The priests were wicked and abusive. They hadn't heard God for decades. The voice of God was rare in the land, but yet they're going to go into battle and then they're wondering why God isn't going to bail them out of that battle. They're ignoring the wickedness in the land. They're ignoring the fact that things are not right. They're ignoring the fact that they haven't heard God say, go and do in this. Surely the elders of Israel should have been seeking God before they went to fight rather than after, wondering why it all went wrong. And how does this apply to us? Have you ever known a situation in your life where you have known defeat as a Christian? I have. There are times in my life where things haven't been good, and I don't mean defeat as in I felt bad yesterday. Do you know I felt a bit down? I mean defeat if you're holding resentment in your heart towards your brother or sister. I mean defeat as if you can't stop gossiping. I mean defeat as if you're dishonest whenever you're doing your tax returns. That's what I mean by defeat. I mean defeat as if whenever there's something in your life that you're trying to overcome, but you just don't seem to be able to. As Christians, we can experience defeat. Now, we need to be sure, as we heard this morning, through his word, through the songs that we sang, through the message around communion, that God wants us to walk in victory. That's his design. That's his desire. That's his plan. That's what he wants to do. But folks, we have a part in that too because we're the ones that have to walk in it or refuse to walk in it. And what we see here in Israel at this time, they were defeated. They were defeated. I have known this in my own life. I've been cynical. I've been angry. I, without reason, I've had a bad temper. Things in my life that weren't right where I was being defeated as a Christian. You might say, Bill, that's impossible. Christians aren't ever defeated, surely. But listen to 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul says to the church there who are known defeat, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. 
So here is a church that think they're the bee's knees, but yet in their midst, they're fighting with one another. They're letting people go hungry. They're getting drunk around communion. They have lawsuits against each other. And Paul says to them, you're already defeated. You're already defeated. Sometimes, folks, we as Christians know something of defeat because sometimes we are walking in a way that God has told us not to. Sometimes we make the decision to walk in a way we know is displeasing to God and then we're expecting God to bring about victory in our lives. It doesn't work. There are unsanctioned battles we get into. We go and we take the enemy on. We fight in his ground. We fight by his rules. We fight in our own strength and we wonder then why we end up in the dirt and why we suffer loss. See, there are some examples of this. How do you respond when you get hurt or when someone offends you? Do you hold it in your heart and do you look for a way to get revenge? And then do you expect God to bring about the victory in your life? It doesn't work that way. There's sometimes we want to walk in victory and freedom, but we hold malice in our hearts towards the people we should love. See, we need to make decisions to leave those things with God so that we can walk in the freedom of what he has for us. We need to make the decision that we're going to walk this way, God, because we know that this way is the path to victory. This way is the way you're going to bring freedom about in my own life. A lot of us are wondering why we're faces down in the dirt. See, you cannot walk and live on the battlefield and then expect to know the freedom of the walk of victory. You can't be fighting in the dirt one minute and then think, oh, I want to walk in peace and liberty and life in the other. See, if you're on the battlefield, that's not the place you want to be. You want to be on that path that God has called us to walk on in victory. And that's why he says, rid yourself of these things. Forgive, love, let go off so that you're free to walk in the victory that God has called you to walk in. We have a part to play in this. You can't walk in liberty when you're still on the battlefield. And that applies in so many ways. Some of you are thinking that there's things 20 years ago that you're still holding on to. And you're wondering why today you don't experience the freedom that God has for you. That's why. This is what was going on here in our story. They were fighting by the enemy's rules on the enemy's ground without God being in the midst of it. There's also relevance here for us in terms about engaging with our spiritual enemy. Folks, as Christians, we are up against not just the world, not just the flesh, but the devil. He's out to destroy and kill and steal. That's his agenda. That's what he wants to do. But there is a cautionary element to this. In our day, there's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare. You go into a Christian bookshop and you ask where the books on spiritual warfare are, the, the rows are, are lined with them because there's a fascination with this unseen world that exists around us where people want to get into this stuff about spiritual warfare. But folks, I want to give you a bit of caution here. There is a, an aspect of this stuff that it's real, but how much you should be engaging with the devil in terms of spiritual warfare is another question entirely. Now, you may want to shout, and you may want to scream, and you may want to command this and shout at this and shout at the other thing, but be careful, because this enemy is real. This is not a game to be played or trifled with. See, there's a story in Acts 19 that explains this. God was doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul, 
so that even the handkerchiefs he had blessed and anointed with oil were seeing people healed. Diseases were leaving. Demons were leaving with great shouts. But some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use that same name, the name of Jesus, to command those evil spirits to come out of other people. There was a Jewish high priest called Sceva, and it was his sons that were doing this. But listen to this from verse 15. But the evil spirits answered, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man that had the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them all, so that they fled out of the house naked and bleeding. The cautionary tale of engaging with a spiritual enemy and not walking the walk with the Lord. See, this was a, these were a Jewish high priest. They thought, oh, we'll just use that name. We'll just use that phrase, and we'll just overpower this, and do you know we're going to be famous as well? But actually, that's not what happened. They ended up embarrassed, defeated, bleeding, running out of the place, wounded. So be careful of using the phrases, but not walking the walk with the Lord. And there's another passage in Jude 3. Um, sorry, Jude verse 3. Listen to hear what Jude says to the church. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write to you and urge you to contend with the faith or for the faith that was once delivered and entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the course and the, the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So listen, there's a church here, Jude's writing to, and he says, there's people who have sneaked in among you who are perverting the message of God. That's why he says to contend for the faith that was once delivered. So contend for the things that are true because secretly people have slipped in here and they're distorting the message. But listen as he goes on in verse 8. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings or heavenly beings. But even the archangel, Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare condemn him himself, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people slander whatever they do not understand. Now, what does that all that mean? Contending for the body of Moses, Michael the archangel fighting with the devil. The long and short of it is this. The archangel Michael the highest ranking angel in all of God's heavenly hosts does not even challenge the devil on his own authority, but only on the authority that he's given by God. I hear in my day a lot of prayers directed at the devil from people who think that they have an authority that I don't believe they do have. Have you ever heard in boxing, don't fight above your weight class? The enemy and the devil himself is above our weight class. Jesus is the one who contends and fights in that realm alone. God alone has the authority to do that. And when people go taking on these things and these spirits and these spiritual forces, they wonder why they suffer loss because they're bringing a battle into their lives that does not belong to them. Folks, when you are praying, when you're seeking God, when you're claiming victory, whatever it is that you're doing, make sure you're doing it through the sanctioning of Almighty God and His authority and not your own. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, some of you don't agree with me, but that doesn't matter because you haven't got the microphone. 
Um, you can come and talk to me afterwards. We need to be careful, folks. People have invited battles into their own homes through trying to engage in the spiritual realm in an unwise and an improper manner. That's what Jude says. That's what we see in Acts in our story in 19. We cannot fight battles above our weight class. Be sure and be careful about what battles you engage in. We Christians are assured victory. Our Father's heart is that we walk in victory, not ease all the time, but victory, but only when we walk in His way and in His will. The Israelites lost the battle because they did not do God's will in God's way. But the second thing we see in our passage, if you go to verse 3 of the passage we're looking at this morning, really shows their condition and the way things were in the land at that time. They hadn't heard God for decades. They go into a battle unwisely. They are defeated. But let's look what happens next. In verse 3, they say, Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, that was from the tabernacle, so that he may go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh. They brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such, raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Nothing like this has happened before. We're finished. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? There are. These are the gods that struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been subject to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hopna and Phinehas, died. They lose 4,000 men in the first encounter, panicked. What do we do? How are we going to defeat this enemy? Fearful. Do they go back and see if God has anything to say about why they were defeated in the first place? Do they ask the question that they asked in the time of Joshua at Ai, what sin has caused our defeat? You remember that story? When Israel were going into the promised land, they overcame Jericho easily and they went to fight Ai and they were defeated by a lesser army because there was sin in the camp. But the people here haven't learned that lesson. They just go right back into the battle again. They don't consult God. They don't seek to put things right. Here in the days of Eli, they just treat the manifest presence of Almighty God, like a good luck charm. I'm going to show you a few pictures. Um, Rachel, if you could show the tabernacle one first, that would be great. To give you an idea of what this is that we're even talking about here, the Ark of God, um, this is a picture of the thing that God's people set up in the wilderness as a sanctuary of worship during their time there when they came out of Egypt. So it's not very spectacular, but in their wilderness wanderings to meet with God, they would meet with God in this place. Um, the tent on the left-hand side was the tabernacle, as it were. That's where they would go to meet with God. And then you had the 
encampment around. So all the tribes would have been situated around the outskirts of this border. But when they came into here, they would have come to the altar and the basin and then into the holy place. So that's how they worship God during their wilderness wanderings. And at Shiloh then, when they set up a tabernacle, it, kinda, it wouldn't have been exactly like this, but it would have been the same idea where people would come to worship. Go to the next one for me, Rachel, would you? And this is a cross section of the tent that you've seen. On one side, on the left-hand side, you had the holy place. That was where you have the candlestick and the, the priest is there and different things on the table. But beyond that holy place, through the curtain, would have been the most holy place. And this is where God's manifest presence was on the Ark of the Covenant. So that's what you see on the right-hand side there. You see this box overlaid with gold with angels on top and God's manifest presence, a tangible, visible expression of Almighty God among his people would have been here. And into that room, the high priest would have gone once a year, but that was it. Nobody else could go there. It was only the high priest once a year, and that's where God's presence dwelt. And then go to the next one for me, Rachel. And this is an up-close picture of what that ark would have looked like. A box overlaid with gold. Inside the box, you had a few items, but it was what was on top of the box that was the most important. Between the cherubim angels here, God's presence as a, a, a shiny light, it's, it's impossible to describe, would have sat there. So the high priest viewed this once a year, but it was God living among his people. And that's what the Ark of the Covenant was. And then go to the next one for me, Rachel. This type of idea. So whenever it says in our story today that they brought the Ark, they went into this place where the Ark was kept. They carried the Ark into and onto the battlefield. Okay, so now just bear that in mind. That was what they did. Let's get the ark. We'll bring God with us and he'll deliver us from our enemy. That's what they thought was going to happen. This was something of God's presence in their midst. Now, this is an awesome thing and it's a sacred thing. Think about how much respect you have for your treasured possessions. Think about gifts that your children have given you, poems they've written, pictures they've drawn letters you've been given, photographs with your family that mean a lot. Maybe someone in your family has passed on and left you something, an item of jewelry or whatever it is. Think about how precious those things are to you. And then think about what they had in their midst was the most precious thing of all. It was the presence of God with them. The presence of Almighty God. That was the most precious thing in all of Israel. Certainly the most precious thing that God had ever given anyone, himself, his manifest presence. But what do we find in our story? We find that in the middle of a bloody battlefield, God's people grab his presence and run with it into the fight. They treat it with contempt. They treat it with, oh, it's just a box. It's a bit of a relic. It's a bit of a good luck charm. But nobody goes, hold on a minute. This is a sacred thing. This is an important thing. This is God himself. We, we don't just bring this onto the, the field of battle. This is, we're only to move this when God says we're to move it, but they don't think like that. The people bring the most precious thing they have, the presence of God. They bring it. They treat him like a good luck charm, like a mob in exchange for a win in a fight. 
See, what had happened over the years was that God, who he was, his presence, his living presence in their midst has become less to them in their minds. They've, they've just thought, oh, there's a box there in that room. Do you know, it's a bit special, but we haven't really heard from God. Um, it's not really that important. And things have deteriorated over time. And there's a superstition at work here now where once there was a living, engaged relationship with Almighty God, it has just become superstition to them. They do no longer treat the holy things of God with the respect that they once had. Now, for us, this poses a real challenge for us, and I'm asking you to search your own hearts with this. Has your salvation, has your walk with the Lord, the presence of the Lord in your life become just a relic of bygone days to you? Has it become something that you look back to with fondness, but actually today you're not really engaging with God at all? See, folks, we were singing songs this morning about the greatness and the goodness and the, the bigness of our God. How many people in here in your hearts were engaging with Him in those moments? I was tempted to come up and look around, but then I didn't want to distract you. But folks, see, when we come here to worship God, we're worshiping the living God in our midst. We're engaging with Almighty God. See, this isn't just a slot that you fill on a Sunday morning. This is a time to engage with the living Almighty God. But the trouble is, for some of us and some people in our country at this time, their Christianity is a relic of bygone days and not an exciting living relationship with a powerful Almighty God. This was what was going on in the days of Eli and in Israel. Are you, and is this, is this possible? And I struggle even to put this down because I know this goes right into the depths of our hearts. Are we treating the sacred things of God with familiarity? Are we taking God for granted? Now that sounds crazy to even say those words, but the sad reality is sometimes we are. Could it be that you are dragging the name and the reputation of Almighty God into a bloody battlefield of your own making and taking God's glory and using it in such a way that you're bringing dishonor to his name. See, that's what they did. And these stories have been recorded for our example that we would not make the mistakes they did. See, the consequences for Israel was dire. 30,000 men died that day. 30,000? Unnecessarily. The ark of God, the most precious thing they had, was taken by their closest enemy. The Philistines probably laughed as they carried that ark back. You know, they thought that was going to destroy us. And look here, we're taking it home. We've got all this gold and we've got the most precious thing they own. They're going to be subject to us. Next week, we'll discover how that turned out for them. But suffice to say now, they probably thought, oh, this is great. Folks, I'm convinced in years gone by, Foolish men and women have tried to invoke the name of God to further their own ends, holding God up like some sort of totem. You know, if I say God's name here, if I say that this is for him, then he's going to make it work. We have one popular president doing that at the minute. Did it from the beginning of the elections. If I hold God's name up here and say that this is about God, then the people will get behind me. 
but nothing is new. Everything has been done before. And this has happened numerous times throughout history. God's word used to enforce slavery, to pardon abusive husbands, to manipulate women, to manipulate the masses of people, to make lots of money, to give license for immorality. And here's one for closer to home, to fuel sectarianism. God's name used to fuel sectarianism, breaking down communities, stirring up division, feeding into a sectarian spirit that exists in our land. See, these things, just saying it's for God, doesn't make it for God. Just saying this is in his name and he's okay with this does not make him okay with that. We have been guilty of this in the past. The most precious things we have being treated like nothing. Is it any wonder when we look around at our culture today, we see people on every side treating God as meaningless and treating the precious things of God as if they're not worth anything. See, we shout at that. We scream at that. We say, isn't that terrible? But we are the ones who have shown people how to do that because the precious things of God should be held in high regard by us. And if they're not held in high regard by us, then what reason have we got to expect anyone else to hold them in high regard? See, if we do not place value on these things, the world is not going to, but they have mirrored how we have treated the precious things of God, like God's word, like God's presence, and most importantly, like God's people, or most significantly, like God's people. We do not treat each other with love and respect and dignity and care and value. Then what, why is the world going to do that? The Philistines treated this like a relic because Israel did first. The Philistines thought this was just a box because that's how Israel treated it, first of all. Let me be more specific for us. And this is probably one of the things that has concerned me most about contemporary Pentecostalism. The most precious thing you and I have is our salvation most precious thing you and I have is our salvation. doesn't get any more precious than that. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me to bring me into a relationship with the Holy God. The weight of the accusations and list against me with the sentence of death upon me that I would one day be separated from God forever, lost and without hope in the world. God took that upon himself bore the full weight of that price upon his own shoulders so that I could go free. Folks, that's the most precious truth that we have. It's the most precious thing that we have. Can I ask you, is that the most precious thing to you? Is that the most important thing in your life? Have we lost the wonder of that? With all the, the years that we've been Christians, and all the times that we've heard it, have we lost the wonder of the cross? There are lots of things, folks, in our lives, and I know it as well as anybody. There are lots of us talk about the more, talk about the more. But if that more does not include the cross, that's a bit worrying. If the books that you left in your Christian bookstore talk about the more and the great things of God in your life, if it doesn't talk about the cross, Get rid of it. Throw it in the bin. Because there is no more apart from the cross. It's what the whole book of Colossians is about. 
people talking to you about secret knowledge and secret wisdom and secret revelation, if it doesn't include Jesus, throw it in the bin. Don't listen to it. Because this is the most precious thing we have. Do you agree? Maybe, sometimes. Is it the most precious thing to you? And as I was preparing this this week, folks, that's, I was asking myself that question. I was literally looking at those words, and, and as those words came to me, I was literally looking in the mirror and going, Bill, is the cross of Christ the most precious thing to you? And all that you want to do and how you want to help people and how you want to encourage them in their walk with God and all how you want people to be blessed and, and be a part of a community that's vibrant and exciting and where they feel cared and where they feel... Is the cross the most important thing to you? And I had to do some deep soul searching and asking that question. And that sounds, that sounds bizarre even for me to say that. But folks, you and I both know in all the busyness and clutter of our lives and all the things that is vying for our attention and all the things that we could be doing, sometimes we lose the wonder and the beauty and the the heart of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us, the ultimate sacrifice that we could go free. And I just wrote down, God, please restore to us the wonder and the joy of your salvation. Help us be fascinated by the cross more than anything else. Help us give you thanks for that rather than if we had a good day or if we got whatever blessing we get in our lives, help us be so thankful for the cross that it's never off our lips. That's what I want for us. As we bring this to a close, what happens last of all, um, it just kind of finishes this whole tragic case of events. There's a Benjaminite who's been at the battle and he runs back to Shiloh, to Eli. Now Eli, as an old man, his eyes have grown, grown dim. You'll read about it in 1 Samuel 4, verse 12 through to 21. Um, this whole episode. But what happens is the Benjaminite runs back. He tells Eli, your sons have died. We've lost 30,000 men on the battlefield and the ark of God has been taken. And at the point in which the man says the ark of God has been taken, Eli dies and he falls off the wall and his neck breaks. It says because he's old and he's heavy. And he's heavy because he's been eating the sacrifices that the people are bringing to offer to God. Him and his sons have been taken way too much. And that's why it says that. We read about that at the start of 1 Samuel. But Eli falls off the wall. He is dead. I think it's Hopni's wife is in labor. Sorry. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and she was about to give birth. She's literally in the process of giving birth and the word meets her and she's told about what has happened. Her husband has died. We've lost a lot of men on the battlefield and the ark of God is taken. And at that point for her, she realizes that all has been lost and she actually dies giving birth to that child. And the name of the child is, is, a, is an awful name and it represents something awful, Ichabod because she says the glory has departed. The glory is gone. And in those two instances, the priest in his priestly robes, an old man whose eyes are dim, and a young woman giving birth. The most tragic thing about this whole day is that the glory of God is gone. The glory of God. 
The glory has gone. The presence of God is gone. God in our midst. What are we going to do? All seems lost. Israel's slide into paganism and superstition has been going on for decades. But here we see the fruit becoming visible. God judges Eli like he said he would through Samuel. But even in those moments, Eli knows the most important thing about this day is that the presence of God is gone. For the young woman giving birth, the presence of God is gone. There is no more terrifying prospect than the reality of God in our midst not being here. There is no more frightening thing. Whatever we lose, whatever we face, however difficult our journey might be, that one thing is invaluable. Do not lose that. And what I mean by that, David prayed in Psalm 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was the one thing that he was most concerned about. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And I believe that once you come into a living relationship with God, that that will always be your standing with him. You'll always be a child of God. You will always be right in his sight because of Christ and not because of you. But there are seasons in our lives where the reality of our relationship with God isn't as real as it could be. Our standing with him is right. Judicially, we are right in his sight. When we see him face to face in the last day, it will be because of Jesus that we can stand there righteous in his sight. But folks, how many of us go through years and seasons when we don't even appreciate the fact that we have a living relationship with God. See, that is the most precious thing we have in our, in our day-to-day walk. We have this connection with God. I would like to ask you, if you had have been an Israelite that day, what would you have been most concerned about? If we had have been there and heard that news, what would we have been most concerned about? Because that's a good indicator of where your heart is and what you're thinking about. There are lots of connections here between Israel and Christ's church. We are his people. And the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament has been replaced by us. We actually carry his presence within us. We are custodians of his presence. We are people who walk with the living God inside of us. So we do that on a daily basis. We are called to walk in victory. We're called to proclaim his name and his fame where we go. And I would like to ask us, how are we faring in that task? Are we treating what's in there as significant and important? Or is that just an afterthought? Let me finish with this from 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not test Christ as some of them did, and we should not grumble as some of them did. These things happen to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the end of the ages has come. Everything that we see in this story, we can relate to our own lives. Challenges, difficulties, preciousness of God's presence, carriers and custodians of God's presence, battles that we shouldn't get into, battles that we should, and victory with God on our side, but only when we do things in his will, in his way. 
Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help every single one of us be attentive to your leading, doing your will in your way for your glory, Lord. I pray that you would help us value valuable things. And Lord, you are precious to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself more real to us so that we would fall more in love with you and serve you more effectively as a result. Lord, and may, may, may we never lose the wonder of the cross. Lord, please help us. Please help us, Lord. We have become so familiar with the precious cross of Christ that it's nearly for some of us like an afterthought. But I pray, God, each day as we wake, all that we are and all that we would seek to do would be in light of your great sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bless you, folks. It would be lovely to see you tonight at 6...